Hello, you are listening to Chrononauts, a science fiction literature history podcast. This month, we are covering the July 1939 issue of Astounding. Please check out the other segments for the previous stories in this magazine, but this segment is covering the final work in this issue by C.L. Moore. We have covered Moore previously on this podcast when looking at her story, Vintage Season. The discussion of that story and Moore's background can be found in the third part of our 34th episode, covering three works that deal with time travel. This story, in the issue of Astounding, though, is Greater Than Gods, which I really enjoyed. I think I still prefer Vintage Season, but this one was a really good story. Yeah, I think Vintage Season is slightly better, but I definitely like this one a lot, too. <laughs> she just has a really good prose style. She does. I think that, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of what makes this good, is that it's written really well. I I do think it, it sort of falls into this overly deterministic mm. mindset that I'm, I'm a little bit, like, not a fan of, but it's not necessarily that more is 100% on board with that either i don't think so i don't know it's it's it works really well because of how well it's written i think this is probably out of all the stories she probably does have the best prose yeah i mean i think that the way more is able to convey emotion and the way that things affect people is really great yeah and she's able to convey emotions in a way that not many of the other authors do or they they maybe just chose not to mm. She just does it naturally. Like, it's it's kind of, she's, I mean, I, I don't mean to be like, oh, that's because she's a woman. But it just seems like there's this kind of tendency that she has to really focus on the emotions that the characters are feeling. More so than some of her contemporaries. Certainly a good chunk of the story is spent with one of the characters in a state of emotional distress, just racking his brains about what is he going to do. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of that in this. This is pretty much <laughs> yeah, all through, right? It's just emotional turmoil for this one poor guy who's yeah. in this literal impasse, and it's it's a very strange situation. But the way the way that she writes it definitely it reminisces to some other, I guess, stories where somebody sort of gets shown two different alternative paths, and they get to choose which one to take, and they don't necessarily know which one's better. And I don't know. I feel like I've seen this in more recent science fiction movies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I can't really think of too many examples, but Gretchen, you were saying you watched Donnie Darko recently. And yeah. I, I, I sort of remember getting that feeling from it, I guess. It's been a long time since I watched it. But yeah, yeah it seems more mystical too. Like almost mm. there's no reason for these people to connect except that they are linked by biology somehow and there's been this kind of telepathic or technological developments in the future that make it possible for them to connect which is really interesting because it's like on one level it's the kind of thing where i personally would balk at writing something where those kind of connections happen but she's able to explain it in a way that makes it ring true and you want to keep reading it yeah Yeah, I think besides the emotional distress, I also really enjoy the more positive emotions that are shown in this work. Like, we'll get into it a little more, but like the love 
and affection that's yeah, kind of totally. shown between characters in this is also just really well done and pretty touching, I think. Yeah, for sure. And even like whatever side of the coin that we might decide is less attractive than the other. And she kind of leaves it open, actually, as to mm-hmm. which one is not as attractive. She makes it pretty clear that either one is a bit extreme, I think. Mm. But like whichever side you choose, more still expresses affection for the people in that framework. Like yeah. both the distant son and the distant daughter. Right? Mm. It's like he's kind of loves them both. He can't help it somehow. And and even though one may be, I guess, overly sybaritic and the other one overly militaristic he still appreciates them both Mm -hmm. so yeah thinking about a couple of comparisons and i think it's a pretty interesting one to think about alas all thinking when reading this it's one that really came to mind when i was going through the story yeah definitely yeah anything with that kind of future projection of humanity and the directions that it may take over I guess it didn't say how many generations, but it's certainly implied that it's, like, a lot. A long time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I do think the ending, it's kind of a decision that has to be made, but at the same time, it's a little funny. I don't don't know. I don't know if it's just funny to me, but we'll get there when we talk about that. I think she was definitely going with humor for that one. And I was (laughs) not entirely sure what twist she was going to put on at the end. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we'll talk about it when we get there. I thought she yeah. might have gone in a different direction. Mm. Oh, okay. Interesting. But, yeah. Yeah, I didn't expect the direction it took, but I'm sure she meant it to be a humorous ending, you know? Yeah, because it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's It feels okay. very similar to some of the other kind of zinger endings yeah, that you right, get definitely. in, in yeah. these polls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm glad I'm not the only one then that yeah. I was like, am I supposed to think that's funny? I, I'm not sure. <laughs> right, but... <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. I think it does work. I think it's a funny ending. It does feel strange that it does, since yeah. just all this very it's emotional that After story. all this emotional tumult, <laughs> it feels kind of... Yeah. Anyway, we better just... Now we're just sounding vague, so I guess yeah. we better... This is probably another one where it's best to talk about it more mm. afterwards, because then you, you really... Yeah. yeah. It's a lot easier to talk about it once you have all the, the pieces. Yeah, yeah. century doctor bill Corey, another bill in the stories i'm summarizing writing a letter to one of two women he can't decide between to marry 
The two women are Dr. Marta Mayhew and Sally Carlyle, the latter of whom he decides to address in his letter before he's interrupted by a visit from a friend. Yeah, this guy's such a cat, isn't he? It's <laughs> <laughs> like looking at the two women pictures and going, huh, which one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really funny. She makes it seem like it's not like the Rockland story where it's almost mm. like a little bit okay, you're using like casually sexist language to describe this, but it's not really like that in this even though it's that kind of situation yeah. where you have like a really I don't know, like a man who's just kind of like undecided and stringing multiple women along. <laughs> well, at least you know, he does refer to their personalities and like who they yeah. are as people yeah, a bit yeah. more, which I think it makes it a little more uh, palatable. And it never feels like gawking and leering, which is what mm. the Rockland definitely did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yes, he's addressing this letter before he's interrupted by a visit from a friend, Dr. Charles Ashley, who heads what's called the Telepathy House of Science City. Seeing Bill's romantic indecision, Charles muses on his possible futures with each woman, and then about futures in general, calling the futures an infinite reservoir of an infinite number of futures, each of them fixed yet malleable as clay. He considers the idea of a possibility plane, where all futures that result from every decision exist simultaneously, and how powerful one could be if they could access that plane, like a god. Bill brushes off all of this speculating, even as Charles leaves with it still on his mind. Still considering his dilemma, Bill starts to lean more towards Sally. Not a scientist herself, but fun and entertaining to be around. As he does, his vision blurs and he hears someone calling out for their father and calling to him. And when his sight is clear again, he finds the futuristic three-dimensional photo of Sally on his desk, now one of a woman with her resemblance as well as his own. The woman is calling him, and when he answers, confused, she tells him she's reaching out to him across the millennium. Through the picture, he can see her surrounded by other people in a circle who appear tense with concentration. It is through these people's mental abilities, as well as her own, that the women can speak to Bill. Believing he's dreaming, Bill asks her questions, and in responding to why he was chosen, she tells him that he is the last male to be born in her family before what she calls the blessed accident that saved the world from itself, and wants to show him what lies in his future. He receives memories of marrying Sally, of Sally's love of partying and fashion causing financial strain and less effort in his own work, work on sex determination. As others in Science City took him less seriously with his lack of success, Bill moved from the city with his wife, just wanting to be with her and their two daughters, the first of whom is Sue, sharing the same features as the woman from centuries in the future. More girls were being born than boys during that time, and this trend continued even after Bill's death. Not, more states, that it mattered much, really. Women in public offices were proving very efficient, Certainly, they governed more peacefully than men, though apparently women are not as overall drawn to the sciences. In this future, there has been a decrease in mechanization and technological advancement, a trend towards the rural, and an outlaw on war. Bill, meanwhile, loses himself in these visions in the future past his own existence, but he starts to grow concerned, watching the coming generations become less concerned with science and technology. 
He wonders then if this future is fixed. If he didn't marry Sally, could he present what he has just seen? Tearing up the letter to her, he rejoices in having the will to reject this future, but feels regret not getting to spend his life with Sally or raise their daughters. He turns to Marta's picture, and after a flash of blinding colors, opens his eyes again to see her eyes in the face of a boy that resembled himself, wearing a cap of steel. Calling the boy his son, Bill is met with no emotion from him, only a cold greeting. Seeing Bill confused, though, the boy slightly softens, explaining that he is revered in this future, and is surprised to learn they've contacted him before his great work is finished. He also tells Bill that he is John Williams Corey IV, and Bill feels pride when John tells him of his position in his world. Bill accepts their request to show him his future, still holding the possibility he is dreaming. He sees his marriage with Marta, with whom he could work as well as play, and who encouraged his success. She was the one who wanted him to reveal his discovery, the ability to offer parents the choice of having a girl or boy. Even though Bill was still hesitant, he eventually did make it public, and people clamored to use it. However, around this time, the dogs that Bill had experimented upon during his research were acting strangely, obeying each command while not being officially trained. Whether this was high intelligence, obedience, or something else was uncertain. Even as others praised Bill for his invention, he remained uneasy. The Cory system's use became widespread, but Bill soon had his mind taken off his misgivings about it. It's so interesting that this, again like one of the other stories we talked about earlier, was published in 1939 because mm. I kind of feel like maybe in a few years, some people would have thought a little bit more strongly that one version of this future society is much worse than the other one just mm. because of what had happened in the world at that time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah but, I mean, I mean when it's... you think about it objectively, yeah, you can see why like, they both seem equally bad in some ways i guess like depending on your perspective but it's like it just seems like that was on the cusp of such a significant time where so many people in the world's viewpoints about those kind of things changed due to mm -hmm. really terrible first-hand experience <laughs> yeah 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 like you can imagine that the response would be pretty different if this was just like a year or two later for sure and i mean the male lineage that we're into here is very clearly based on the Nazis. I mean, they're all doing mm -hmm. the Roman salute. They're hyper-organized like a military, but the, I guess it just didn't have the association with aggressive warfare and death camps and things like that, that that was coming. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly the racism and anti-Semitism and, all that stuff turned a lot of people off very, very yeah, early. Yeah, that was already known, obviously. <laughs> but, you know, it didn't have a body count in the millions like it would just a few years later. Yeah. Right, exactly. And I think that's what I mean. Like, it's just not... It's one thing to have a unpleasant ideology when you're not murdering millions of people, right? Anyway, sorry, I just... I, there's so many things to say about this that I'm not... Yeah. I, I'm, like, worried that I'm not going to remember everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Have, putting a pin in several things to mention after yeah. the summary. Uh, but yes, Bill soon had his mind taken off of his misgivings about it by the birth of his own son, who had not been subjected to his discovery. 
Bill Jr. was stubborn, making his own life choices, unlike those children who had undergone the Cory system. They, instead, lacked initiative and ambition. The first generation of children came of age as a General George Hamilton controlled the U.S., a man who believed in a world in which individuals are subjugated under the state. To achieve this world, he waged wars and encouraged the boys to be soldiers for them. After the general died, other leaders were still able to take up his cause, which expanded over time from creating a united world to a united solar system as space travel developed, conquering Mars, Venus, and Jupiter. In this united solar system, it is mandatory for people to place the needs of the leader class above their own individual needs, creating a society of little emotional expression and hiding of true selves from others. Bill can see that this future is the result of working towards the opposite goal of the previous one. At his descendants, or Billy's, eagerness, Bill starts to think of how great man's achievements are in that future, but the thoughts waver when Sue calls to him again from the other picture. He realizes, as both figures in the photos reach out to him, that neither can see the other. They cannot exist together, and Bill must choose between them. But how can he choose? Bill then questions how both of them, out of all of their generations, managed to contact him at this exact point in his life, and he sees that both of them are opposite poles, possessing qualities that, they get, that together make up himself. He tries to talk to both Sue and Billy, but they grow concerned, though Sue understands more with her mental abilities. The leader in Billy's world tries to talk to Bill and gets upset when the scientist implies that the future isn't fixed. Sue does as well, asking Bill how he can believe that she and the world she lives in aren't real. Eventually, Bill turns from both photos, finding faults with both futures but finding no alternative choice but to accept one or the other. Happiness and extinction, or unhappiness and immortality. The leader in the latter future draws Bill's attention once more, threatening to destroy Bill, even if it means, as Bill reminds him, the elimination of himself and the rest of his world. Rolling out the weapon, he instructs Bill to call Marta and propose to her. Before he does so, Bill has an idea. He pushes a button beneath his desk, which calls his secretary, Miss Brown, into the room. With a last look at Sue and Billy, he asks Miss Brown if she will marry him, and she accepts. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what a twist. The one he wasn't thinking of all along. It just... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or at least he wasn't telling us that he was thinking about her the whole time. Yeah. Maybe he was. Yeah. <laughs> I thought one this. direction he might go with this is the polyamorous both option. Mm. Um, yeah. I thought he would swear off marriage. Yeah, that would be another way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The two futures vanish, and Bill knows that the future he has set the course for will be better, more balanced. He knows right. he hasn't lost Sue and Billy since they are a part of himself. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, Miss Brown is the only other woman mentioned in the story, and mm -hmm. he pretty much has to do something like this. Like that's yeah. just he has to break away from the the loop of paths somehow, right? So, mm. I mean, he could act indecisive, but then the longer he does that, the more likely he's just going to get shot. <laughs> like the, his future descendant, who's like, I don't care if it wipes out all of us. It's your weakness is is going to be the undoing of the universe. It'll be your fault. <laughs> oh, like. 
And I love uh, how like he knows it's all empty threats because he seems to understand how time travel paradoxes work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but then, I don't know, like I was wondering about this recently and Gretchen and I, you were and I were talking about this once, but how, how much are time paradoxes really a human construct of existentialism? Like, how does the universe really respond to that? We don't know because we've <laughs> we've never been able to time travel. It seems impossible. So mm-hmm. we don't know exactly how the universe will respond to time paradoxes. But it certainly seems like he is at the cusp of one right now. <laughs> he certainly is. Yeah. Never so literal was the decision to be made. Mm-hmm. And it's really, I guess, startling how extreme this story is with that in a way like just presenting that so so vividly and so clearly and yeah, yeah it is kind of funny that in the end he chooses to marry this other woman yeah. it's just like oh wow <laughs> yeah more women he had her in his back pocket for yeah. that whole time <laughs> yeah. yeah three women at the office yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i guess things were different back then sometimes but i just like you never had any intimate relationship with somebody at all and you're just asking them to marry you like this. (laughs) (laughs) hippies versus nazis and he chooses the third option yeah 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 which by the way i feel like i don't know i'm sure the other you both may have maybe different opinions but i definitely would have gone with the the first future yeah, I would. I, I like the hippies. You know, I, yeah. I, I could hang out there. We're we're just reading literature all day, talking about nothing really in particular important. Yeah. You know, it's a nice day out. Just yeah, yeah. it's cool. Yeah, I don't want to explore join the your mind. You know, I remember thinking the same thing reading Alas, All Thinking. Mm. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Again, that was like a story where again I said. After 1939, would people think differently about this? And and it's like, it's interesting because we're getting to that cusp now. And I think, like, I don't want to spend the entirety of Chrononauts talking about the American pulp magazine market, but I think it would be cool to look at, now look at stories from the late 40s and early 50s. Not just in Astounding, but like, especially Galaxy, which kind of has an opposite political viewpoint almost sometimes because of the editor. Yeah, I definitely would like to do a Galaxy episode at some point. Yeah, same. And I think that would be another excuse to rope in some of this Italian stuff there. Because yeah. it was big in Italy. It was partially Italian co-founding and, and all that. But yeah, no, we definitely have a lot of international stuff planned for our yeah. coming episodes. And the American market does get a lot of recognition. Attention. And, uh, you know, attention because it really was the dominant market internationally during this time. I mean, other stuff mm-hmm. obviously existed, but this stuff was getting exported all over the world. And especially after the Second World War, it's it's really where we see the non-American science fiction scenes really like take off. I, yeah, I, I think a lot of the histories we've looked at of various non-English science fiction materials after World War II is where a lot of them really, really start to get going. Uh, There's Mm -hmm. obviously early precursors for a lot of this stuff, which we've talked about on the podcast before. But as far as like an international movement where we're talking about fan involvement and conventions. Yeah, real science fiction community. Right, exactly. After World War II is really where it starts to get going. Again, the, the first society described 
supposedly female-oriented society does remind me of the Bates a little bit. Yeah. But I'm kind of thinking, like, so I don't know what I think about all that. I don't know what I think about all that. The fact, the idea that, like, a society that's largely dominated by women, but she's not really leaning too heavily on that aspect of it, Mm -hmm. I think. Like, it's more like it's the result of his union and he's just like a focal point in history. Like there's not even any real necessary reason for him to be a focal point in history. He just is. And so if he marries this woman, things are going to go more this way. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's like kind of suggested that I guess, yeah, like the, the military society is completely male dominated. And I guess the more, pacifistic society is more woman dominated but it also could just be a result of the historical events that unfold around him like i don't really think she's hammering home the gender angle that much i don't know what do you guys think especially i think in that one segment that i kind of read a little from where she does say that about women being not disposed towards science and technology, which I'd have to wonder, you know, I'm sure that Moore maybe was a little tongue-in-cheek with that, I would hope. She's obviously playing up on gender stereotypes in extreme ways in either direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Her comments about women not wanting to be, quote, not scientists, not inventors, not mechanics or engineers or architects, there were men enough to keep these essentially masculine arts alive. That is as much of them as the new world needed. It feels, yeah, it feels a little like she's satirizing, maybe. I don't think she is necessarily. Women, while involved with all of those technical fields she mentioned, were there. They definitely did not play a prominent role in the public perception of those industries. You look at any engineering or scientific banquet from 1939, and it is 100% without exception, all men. But how much of that was due to just expectations of the way people should be more than actual, the actual way that people are, right? I mean, we know that now that that's, that's a big factor in it. It's not saying that women can't do these jobs, which they obviously can right. it's that but they did were... they did not at that time it's for sure but societal like structural issues rather it, than it, it absolutely is there was yeah. really no path for the average woman to be in those fields at that time there there's right. obviously it was, exceptions. So, it was society and the way it was set up it wasn't yeah. the nature of men and women it yeah. was the way things have been set up right. yeah. that prevented yes. women from gaining access at the ones who thought hey, it would be really cool to be an explorer, which is what Willie Lee said in his high school assignment, and he was poo-pooed by his teachers, but, like, if he was a woman, he would have probably been poo-pooed a lot more. Right. If he said, hey, I want to be an explorer, and, like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, the women that had the opportunity to make advancements or really any mark at all, they all had the commonality of being upper-class and uh, well-connected in some way. Well, yeah, and they had more opportunities Mm -hmm. because of that, right? I mean, yes, they they were held back in other ways, but they could perhaps indulge these things that 
some of the stupider men in their lives were probably like, oh, it's just a foolish, foolish canard. Uh, <laughs> you being interested in your microscopes. Uh, yeah, I don't know. So, I mean, again, I think that, I mean, more herself, she definitely seemed to, I don't know, like to me, it definitely seems like she believes that artistry and things like that are very important and that women are very good at that. And she herself is very good at that. I don't know if she herself could have imagined being in a technical field and maybe that creates a certain alienness to it where it's like it seems very masculine or something like that well i think it's also jm you were saying at the beginning like when we were talking about how much emotion that she puts into her work and how it's different from like something that was written usually by a man everybody's always feeling everything and very strongly (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah you have to wonder was her own writing style influenced by this idea that she had and maybe she felt that that was how she should write as a woman or maybe she thought that the reason she wrote differently from her peers was because she was a woman but that I mean, and, and then and we come around full circle because now that we phrase it like that, I can't help but see that as a good thing. Like, that's a, yeah, that's cool, actually, that she did that, right? But, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. She probably didn't know any women scientists, I'm imagining. No, there weren't many that were high profile at the time at all. In yeah. fact, you know, I, I talked about the ENIAC being one of the first electronic digital computers in the world. Well, the people who programmed the ENIAC were all women. And there's amazing photos of the women who worked with the ENIAC that are circulating now. But at the time, in the 1940s, all the promotional photos were with the men. And Mm -hmm. any women who appeared that were with the machine that day when they were taking those promotional photos that were going to be used in advertisements and stuff were airbrushed out of the photos. What? Yeah. (laughs) Oh. Yeah. So, I mean, while women have been recognized for their achievements in the sciences and the engineering world that were doing things in the 1930s and before, they're recognized today. They mm-hmm. were not at all recognized at the time. Yeah. Nobody knew who Ada Lovelace was in 1939. And mm-hmm. when they talk about Babbage in the article we read in this issue, Ada yeah, Lovelace is not mentioned in that. She's not yeah. And she is arguably the most important part of that story as far as it applies to how computers function today and how forward thinking that was. But mm-hmm. women were just written out of the the narrative at that yeah. point in time. So while women did make contributions at that time through a number of obstacles and hurdles. <laughs> yeah. When they did make those achievements, they were more often than not written out of the the narrative. Yeah. Um, so well, I mean, you know, when talking about a lot of women in history, it's kind of more excavating history rather right, than exactly. taking it as exactly. it is. Yeah. Yeah. In all fairness, she does describe. Oh no! What's the name of the uh, more science-oriented woman that he might possibly oh, marry? Marta? Yeah, she describes her with some af- affection, too. And, and that she's like, 
a really cool person, and it's really cool that she's into all this stuff. Like, <laughs> she obviously likes that idea, so it's kind of a shame that it leads to what it apparently leads to, but at the same time, yeah, not a big deal is made of the fact that she is a female scientist either like you know it's kind of like yeah that's that's what she's really into and she's really serious about it and she's pushing him to do better at his work and i don't know a part of me also kind of thinks well she's the more intellectual one whereas mary she's more like obsessed with more frivolous things or things that could be considered frivolous i guess and Mm -hmm. It's that frivolity that is, in the end, like, kind of the undoing of the human race on that end of the spectrum. Again, like, I feel like if you're going to go down, you might as well go down in a period when people are enjoying themselves and feeling good rather than, like, Mm -hmm. burning in in (laughs) radioactive torment or something like that. Well, I think what's interesting about it is I think this is the same with the last all thinking there's this idea where human beings are not able to face the fact that they are not going to be around forever and because he says either happiness and extinction or unhappiness and immortality but what is the point of immortality if it's Based on, like, colonization and something similar to what yeah, we're right. seeing in When the Half-Gods Go. Like, yeah, we're just sure. completely yeah. overriding right. these other people that have as much right to prosper as we do. And I'm willing to bet you that for most of the astounding readership, the idea that humanity could just wither away and die and not, like, ever get into space and not do anything to spread the idea of human consciousness around the universe would be really depressing. Probably, yeah. 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 I mean, I'm sure the average age of the reader and the subscriber was closer to Isaac Asimov, you know, being like 18, 19 or Mm -hmm. so than people in their 30s and 40s. People who may not even think, I'm not going to die, you know? Right. (laughs) That sort of (laughs) mentality. I was going to say, Gretchen, you're, you're the right age... To me, like, on fire with this stuff. I don't know. To me, maybe now that I've read a couple of these stories, including the Harry Bates that really made me think about this stuff, like, a lot, and this one, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of thinking, like, yeah, but is the idea of winding down thousands of years from now peacefully and, like, contemplatively and intellectually, is it really that bad? I don't know. It doesn't seem that terrible. I mean, it's in the the future, but. (laughs) I don't think so. I mean. I think it's, yeah, I think it's a great way to go personally. And I I think, you know, like we were saying with Alas All Thinking, there's the scene, you know, when he's about to kill one of the humans and it's like, you know, he's having these thoughts that are honestly very poignant and meaningful, but it's like, oh, well, you know, it's not what I think is good, so I'm going to murder this man. (laughs) I mean, I can see how you'd be like, there's a little less brio to life these days, but... (laughs) I don't know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not like we're going out exploring or anything, but does that have to happen if we're content? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. As someone who's spent several hundred hours poring over trying to make sense of Russian and Ukrainian sentences from the 1920s, I don't oh. mind having my head buried in the clouds and in the 
academic works of the arts. I don't think mm-hmm. that being a space Nazi is any good productive use of my time. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, I would prefer not to colonize other planets. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think we should still try, <laughs> but I guess balance and having equal time for every side really seems important but Mm. how do you achieve that and how do you reach that balance i guess greater than gods doesn't really provide an answer to that we don't really know what'll happen when he marries miss brown Mm. she might be more solid and dependable but we don't really know that so i don't know i mean i guess again i really think it's cool how she is able to make both seem like they have their attractive points, even though, yeah, the military society probably is based on Nazism. The illustrations definitely make it very clear it's based mm-hmm. on Nazism. Yeah, but the son is still is a very admirable figure. Like, he's still mm-hmm. described with much love and affection. And yeah. Maybe yeah. that's personal. Yeah. Maybe that's, you know, it's personal. It's not ideological, but it's like, Showing that, yeah, like, and unfortunately, people are hiding themselves in that mm. future, and they're hiding who they truly are. And that seems to me a lot more sad than yeah. just, like, laying back and having like, a good time. Like, I don't know. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Hippies chilling out, and it's like that versus 1984 scenario where no one can express their true feelings. Yeah. Yeah, But that is the point that I do like, is that no individual is at all villainized or anything in this story, really. Even, like, when we were talking about, yeah, Sally, she does like to party. She likes to have fun. She may be a little hard with finances, but you also see that she is someone that brings a lot of joy to to Bill. And, like, he doesn't really mind it at all. I think that's really nice because it could have gone like, here's this woman who's like leeching off of Bill, (laughs) you know, and it felt like that at first. But then you see like, no, it's not really like that. Yeah. 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 He's like, yeah, that's cool. I'm going to go party with you, you know? Yeah. And he legitimately loves his, I guess, hypothetical children and feels (laughs) this deep emotional connection with them, even though he feels that both of their futures are not good. Yeah, it's a really nice touch because yeah. he could portray his descendants as like awful people, but they're not. They're just products of their time and yeah. the environment that they were brought up in. Right. As is anybody, as yeah. is the soldiers that so many will meet, you know, and, and right. have to think about as the enemy. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it is definitely really powerful and like it's kind of crazy how... Again, this is a story of people talking to each other very intensely, but it manages to be powerful and emotional. And yeah, I think Moore is definitely good at that. I remember reading this first. In, this is actually not the first time I read this story. Mm. I read this, oh, I don't know, probably close to 15 years ago now in the Best of C.L. Moore collection. And... This one kind of did strike me at the time as being very like, yeah, there's, it's everybody keyed up to maximum pitch and being really emotional and like trying to argue their case and, and this guy being caught in the middle and 
having to choose between two possible futures and so many of her stories have this climax of intensity to them mm. i think it's actually really cool you know it's something that she just does and i don't know i mean vintage season arguably has a few of them but like obviously at the end there where there's the the big apocalypse moment and yeah. that it's what's his name sitting there alone with the composer and being told what's happening when he's dying of the plague and it's just like (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i don't know i think what i like about her both in this and vintage season is that her pro style is just really inviting and Mm. good to read even though like almost nothing happens in the course of the story i mean like we described the plot summary and you know what happens here but (laughs) it's much longer than it could be of a basic idea of, you know, here's your choice between two future paths. You know, what do you choose? She just has a very good way about plotting and pacing and her word choice and the whole mood and atmosphere. And, and there's a real intensity to her writing. I think that that not everybody has like, it's just like everything is charged up (laughs) in a more story. And like, you gotta figure like her weird tale stories, the Northwest Smith stories, and the Jirel stories. Like the Jirel stories are a little different, but the Northwest Smith stories are basically all about space vampires, mm-hmm. and they're basically about how the men feel when they're in proximity to these various space vampires of different kinds. Like some of them are more literal than others. Sometimes it's a very like existential weird thing that's hard to explain but that's basically being around that will enslave you to that and it's i think we've all read shamblo now right no i I, no i haven't oh okay okay so yeah like that's that's, it's kind of it's it's interesting too because i mean i was gonna save this for actually commenting on shamblo which i think maybe we would like to do sometime we have it penciled in somewhere i mean you know, who knows when we're going to get around to covering it. We have a lot yeah. of things. More right, all these, like, she wrote these point of view characters, like Northwest Smith, kind of like that space western atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And he's encountering all these these mostly vampiric kind of often feminine creatures from various worlds, like Venus and Mars. And she, I guess you could say, like, this kind of story was sort of popular, I mean, there were a lot of stories about similar kind of themes, right? And normally you would think, yeah, we identify with the male protagonist and we identify with the person who's having to overcome these obstacles and these perhaps feminine evils. (laughs) More, though, specifically said, and I can't remember where she was asked about this, but she was talking about Chamblow because it was her first published story. And even though I don't know that it's necessarily her best story, I mean, I love Vintage Season. I think it's a masterpiece. Maybe that's the best thing I've read from her, but I can't say for sure. I mean, again, like we were saying a few episodes back, I don't really feel the need to necessarily say that something is the best. It's just maybe my favorite. But she said that she identified with Chamblow. And she wanted to be more like her. And she thought herself as the space vampire. 
that is her perspective, I think. And even though it seems like a very simple statement where she's just commenting on one of her stories, like it's her first published story, whatever. I think that that does say something, that she did kind of identify with the monster, so-called. And she wants to be that person. She thinks of herself as the mysterious woman with the mysterious snake hair and possibly very seductive, but also very powerful and with a deep intellectual bent. So I don't know. I mean, it's it's just interesting to think about the writers of these kind of stories are really into adventure and they really write adventure stories and often you must imagine that, yes, they sit there and think of themselves as an element in one of the stories that they write. So who do they think of about them? Like, are they Conan or are they one of the villains? I don't know. It's just interesting to read that. Yeah. Where she was saying, like, yeah, Champlot is the the person that I want to be. Like, mm-hmm. even though the Champlot is the mysterious other in the story... That seems kind of threatening and alien. Yeah. Yeah. And thinking of other writers compared to her and thinking of what was mentioned about how engaging her prose is, like you said, Nate. Thinking of this compared to, like, the other two that I summarized, The Moth and Lightship Ho. And it's like, yes, these are action-oriented stories. They have more... Plot-wise, more things going on than more story where, like, you can kind of just say it's a man who's sitting at his desk and he feels a lot of things. Yeah, right. He sees things and he feels things. But that's the one that's more engaging and more interesting to read. Yeah. In in a way, this could have been branded as one of those thought variant stories because, Mm. you know, it it literally is a thought variant. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, it was such a refreshing break to read this story i like the amelia rounds long a lot but the mm. issue really does sag in the middle and yeah i can see that <laughs> i mean I, I pretty much liked everything in here but the bond but i don't know yeah that's it's i see what you mean yeah i mean yeah. the rock one's not awesome i find the bond to be kind of charming and i definitely <laughs> yeah i don't absolutely hate the moth. I think that there's obviously a lot of flaws with it. You know, it's the weakest story here. Yeah, I wouldn't say I hate it. I definitely strongly dislike it. I think it might yeah. go in my bottom 10 of any Chrononaut story we've done. <laughs> okay, yeah. But the more was great and definitely a great closer to the issue. Yeah, I mean, she's definitely two for two on Chrononauts yeah, so far. For she's, sure. she's, oh, yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I would like to come back to her, not because we're a podcast that sticks to doing things according to some kind of order or anything like that, but because we like to cover stories that we like. Mm-hmm. And we're going to do some more host choice, and we're going to do some host choice specifically dedicated towards short stories where we each mm-hmm. pick a couple. So there's a lot of cool stuff like that looking forward, and we might be able to get in all kinds of cool stories. So I don't know. At least a few more more stories are certainly a good possibility. Yeah. yeah. We definitely have some penciled in, and I just checked our list, and that one might be penciled in sooner rather than later when we do more Sword and Planet type stuff. So mm. stick around for that. Yeah. 
There's some annoying, I don't know, it seems like a bunch of ads were placed at the end of this story. Yeah, she got hit the hardest with all the authors for the ads. Which is, you're talking about how engaging the story is, like, what a shame, you know? Yeah, I mean, it is the back of the issue, and the back of the Mm -hmm. issue is typically where you stick the ads, but there are a couple pages where it's just, like, literally one column of the story, and then, like, four columns of advertisements. Yeah. And, you know, they were doing pretty well before then. Like, it didn't seem like the ads were that pervasive. And I was, like, Mm -hmm. tolerantly amused by them. And then they just all kind of showed up there with, I don't know. Yeah, I don't really like that. They realize you're almost finished with the issue. So we got to throw as many of these in as possible. Yeah. Yeah, that was weird. But, I mean, I guess, again, that wasn't really anybody's fault. Like, I mean, this could have been the first story as easily as Black Destroyer, but I'm not unhappy that it was the last story, you know what I mean? Like, if I was yeah. reading the magazine cover to cover, I would want a really awesome story at the end. So, yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think it has the right, like, mood to end on. Yeah. 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 It makes you think more than Black Destroyer does. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess we were all kind of confused by, like, the physics of the ending of Black Destroyer. <laughs> But this makes you think in a different way than that. Yeah. <laughs> so wait, Nate, what was that other thing you were thinking of? How did you think that it was going to end? Oh, that he was going to marry them both and do like a polyamory type deal. Oh, yeah. Okay. I see what you mean. <laughs> I guess so. That would have been that would have been a lot more modern, I suppose. But yeah, I don't know. It's just <laughs> maybe in Sue's future, you know, with all the hippies. That yeah. Would <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, not that it wasn't a thing. Like, one of our authors that we've talked about before, H.G. Wells, was very into that, so... Mm -hmm. And Charles Hinton. Uh, Oh, yeah. 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 But he was more... He was an asshole. Yeah. 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 I I don't want to think too much about Hinton. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Robert Heinlein was kind of into that, too, I guess, but we haven't talked about him yet, so... and He has a way of annoying people, so I don't know how it's going to go talking about him, but... We'll get there someday. Yeah, well, he appears in the August 1939 issue of Astounding, so if you're checking out the collection yeah. of magazines that they have on archive.org, you could just go to the next issue and check yeah, out the Yeah, he's first. in the very next issue. Right, yeah, was that a, his debut? Yeah, his debut anywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it, it's, it's a pretty amazing time for these big science fiction authors. This very specific mm-hmm. period in 1939 of Asimov and Heinlein's debut in Astounding, being pretty much back-to-back. Yeah. Van Vogt right there, and... Van Vogt's there, and yeah, and Clark was still a few years away, but yeah. he would eventually be in Astounding as well. He would, yes. Mm-hmm. I don't think that was his first publication, but it's pretty early on for him. It was his first professional publication, but mm-hmm. he had a couple okay. earlier fanzine publications. Yeah, yeah. So that was like 1940, the late, later 40s sometime. Uh, is, so. Yeah, early mid-40s. Yeah. 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 Do you want to, just for fun, write these stories in the magazine? Worst for me, definitely the Rockland. Did not like this one at all. Yeah. Worst for me, it's, I think, the worst story we've covered in a while. Not the worst story we've covered on the podcast. It's nowhere near as bad as New Steam Man, but did not like it. 
second worst is the Bond. You know, it was not a good story, but to me it was at least like fun in some ways. I would say after that is the Shackner. Kind of middle of the road. Didn't dislike it, but it didn't really have anything aside from that really cool vacuum scene to really stand out. Then I would say Black Destroyer. Overall, I liked it, but it did have some flaws that I wasn't you know, too wild about. Then I would say When the Half-Gods Go. It has a lot going for it. Nothing I really disliked about it. Really cool atmosphere. Then number two is Trends. Really awesome debut from Asimov. Has some really cool themes that it goes over. And he's just an engaging writer. And this one didn't have any of the issues that I had found. Or No, and I think in a lot of his short stories, you'll be okay. Like, yeah. It just, it's not... Yeah, the ones that don't end up in fix-up novels. Yeah. You'll... Generally, there's nothing to be upset about. I, yeah. In my opinion, anyway. And, I, and yeah. I was not here. And number one is this one, Greater Than Gods. I thought that this one was great. I really like Moore's prose style. Yeah, so okay. that's my rankings for this issue. I Because I, I also just <laughs> wrote mine down quickly. I kind of have... I mean, I think I have the same order. <laughs> well, I will say, uh, yeah, The Moth's least favorite. Just the quite a few problems with it like i said i didn't i don't hate it i think we've definitely read some worse works on this podcast but it's not a a good story (laughs) yeah and you honestly picked the right time to join the podcast because when we did that new steam man that was like awful and i would have hated that that would have been the first work you covered on the podcast (laughs) i'm glad that didn't happen i'm glad that didn't happen but I'm also like, New Steam Man is just so interesting because it's so old, right? Yeah. And it's just yeah. like, oh, wow. This yeah. is, I'm glad this I is got what... to start with but... an Edgar Allan Poe <laughs> yeah. work, you know? Yeah. That was nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Then Lightship Ho, which I did find endearing. I find parts of it enjoyable. I think that in a better story, the dynamic between the two main characters would be fun to read. Then, yeah, City of Cosmic Rays. It's I still don't mind it as a standalone, like I said. I think it's kind of fun to picture it as a standalone. Yeah. But it definitely, I'm sure, would be interesting to read as part of the series. And then, yeah, Black Destroyer, which I did enjoy. I think I did enjoy it more than you did, Nate. I kind of did like the crew a little bit more, I think. But yeah, the ending, like we were saying, is a little strange and there were some other issues with it then i i think where the half gods go in trends i kind of want to tie them i think they both have really interesting attributes together i think they both kind of go together as we kind of were mentioning yeah both about religion and both kind of thinking about similar topics i think with that at least but yeah, Greater Than Gods is, is the best one. Yeah, and I, I'm not surprised. I am kind of was thinking it would be just because I love more. So I was very happy that I got to summarize that one and lead on it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. My turn. Well, at the bottom is Nelson S. Bond, Lightship. The humor was not that funny for me. So I don't know. It didn't really work that well. There were some things about it that were charming, though. Honestly, can't say that I really despise anything in the issue so i don't know it was definitely my least favorite though then was rockland with the moth i like the style the hard-boiled stuff the kind of weird future fashion descriptions were cool 
the industrial sabotage angle started out pretty well. And I was almost impressed because I thought we were going to get a really cool woman scientist engineer type person. And we didn't get that. But for a while, it was a possibility. Well, you know, women aren't disposed towards science. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I don't know. The humor was slightly on point, I thought. And the situation Felix's dilemma at the end was interesting. So I don't know. It wasn't that bad. Then I got City of the Cosmic Rays because, yeah, it just felt like being dropped in the middle of something. There were, seemed to be some cool ideas, but they were not fleshed out enough for me. And I don't know, I read the origin story and I, I kind of liked that one a lot better, even though there was tons of weird racial stuff in it and lots of like, this guy is a Greek god that you would really want to have sex with <laughs> kind of stuff in it. The just, I don't know. Yeah, the cosmic rays were just sort of being thrown into the middle of this ongoing thing, even though it wasn't a serial. So I don't know. I liked it, though. The, the style was kind of cool. It was really weird, which made it more enjoyable, I think. Then I got Trends. I like it a lot. I like Asimov. I think his short stories are some of the most influential things in my life. Not just in terms of things that I've read, but, like, things that I thought about when I was a kid and still think about now, and, like, just, yeah. So, I like the story a lot. I just, I don't know if it doesn't stand up to some of his best, but at the same time, yeah, you know, he's 19, he's very passionate about this. It's a problem story. So, it's got a lot of the hallmarks of a really good Asimov story, I think, and the dialogues are cool. I mean, You may say that his characters are not so deep, and that is a general criticism that people level against him, but I don't really think that's fair. I think his dialogues of characters is really fun, and he manages to just convey a lot about them by the things that they say. He doesn't have to tell you a ton of background and this and that and the other thing. I don't know. I will always stand up for Asimov. I like his ability to convey a lot of serious scientific concepts in a way that a lot of people will be able to understand and relate to. I think it's a gift. So anyway, Trends is a really good story. Then I got Black Destroyer, I guess. I'm kind of hesitating between number three and number two. I I don't know. It's, it's, just, it's hard to pick the top ones because I think in a lot of ways, I cannot help but feel... The, the writers are really like are the ones that are going to be on the top and because I've experienced Moore and Asimov and Van Vogt before I'm going to place them highly but in any case Black Destroyer to me is a cool story that's got flaws but the flaws are not to me that much of a deterrent I personally am not too bothered by them in this I don't know, in Van Vogt, I think it's okay. I'm I'm alright with it. If that's wrong or hypocritical or something, so be it. But, I don't know. It doesn't bother me. I enjoy this a lot. I don't know that it's his best. I actually read a story recently that was in the science fiction omnibus and edited by Brian Aldiss. And, as mentioned in our Van Vogt episode, Aldiss seemed to enjoy Van Vogt, even though he is one of those people who 
kind of likes to disparage the science fiction writers of the pulp era, especially who have little literary merit. But he seems to have time for Alfred, and I get it. He's just got a lot of zeal and a lot of wonder in his sensibility. He writes like a dreamer, and I think that's cool. So, number two, yeah, it's When the Half-Gods Go. Amelia Reynolds' song is, is weird because so little seems to be known about her, and I, I can't really unearth too much, and I'm kind of curious about the poetry, but, like, I don't know. She seems unjustly forgotten, perhaps, and, like, it's weird because, yeah, I wouldn't say any of the stories I read by her were, like, maybe top-level in terms of writing, but at the same time, they always leave an impression, and this story really did, and I, I kept thinking about it for a long time, and at the end of the day, that has to be one of my criteria, one of the big ones, is when I finish the story, am I going to think about it a lot afterwards? And this is one where I did. A lot of it was me trying to puzzle out what she meant. And she's enigmatic and doesn't entirely want to reveal that to you, which I respect a lot. So that's why. And then, yeah, Greater Than Gods, again, it probably has mostly to do with the fact that I value, I think we all value good prose and style, and more has that. But also, you know, because we've been talking about this story for a while already, and you can see, it sort of unearthed some feelings and some thoughts and made us want to talk about our, the way we all think about things and our ideologies and how we might perceive the world and how people perceive the world in 1939 who were reading the American science fiction pulp magazines and how that might be different from now and stuff to do with genders and what's expected of the various genders in society and i don't know it's just there's there's a lot packed into it it's maybe not the best more story but i'm still gonna say it's the number one story in astounding july 1939 that's my opinion so i think we're all in unison about that which is cool yeah yeah next time on chrononauts last month or actually i guess a couple of months ago now we talked about fandom and we talked about the early fandom magazines of the 1930s. But we also covered a Star Trek story. And now we're going to talk about how science fiction television media basically spawned the growth of fandom. But not only that, professional books published under the byline of these properties, licensed properties, Licensed to publishing companies in Britain and the United States, specifically. And we're going to talk about two things that we like very much, Doctor Who and Star Trek. And so we're going to be talking about one Doctor Who novel and one Star Trek novel. So the Doctor Who novel I have chosen is The Eye of Heaven by Jim Mortimer. And it is a novel featuring... The Fourth Incarnation of the Doctor and His Companion, Leela. And it was published in 1998. The main reason that I picked The Eye of Heaven was that it is not connected to any of the arcs of stories that feature the Doctors that were current when the novels were written. So, in a sense, that's a weakness for some of the books because the ones that dwell on past incarnations could tend to descend into a kind of rote 
this is what we expect from a Doctor Who story sort of thing. And I guess you could say that about the Star Trek novels too. I mean, of the TOS novels written in the 1990s, like the series is long over, so how much could they possibly do? But the thing is, some writers found ways around this, and I think it was really important to choose something that didn't tie into anything else. And I really like this book, so that was why I chose it, pretty much. And Gretchen, you have picked a, a Star Trek novel. What is that? Yes, I have picked the Star Trek TOS novel, The Wounded Sky, by Diane Duane. I chose that because Diane Duane is quite a prolific writer, especially with Star Trek, but also just in general seems to be connected with a lot of fandoms, including other sci-fi fandoms that hopefully we'll get to talk about. It. Blake Seven, she seems to have experience with as well. It was her first novel for the TOS series of novels, so that was the one I decided to go with. Yeah, so I hope you are looking forward to that. I know I am. It should be really fun to talk about those things. I know we're going to use the time to not just talk about those books specifically, but our relationship with the respective, I guess, fandoms and media, Doctor Who and Star Trek specifically, and, and how we feel about those things. Because we've certainly hinted at a lot of those before on the podcast. Everybody who's been listening for a while probably knows that we like those things, especially Doctor Who, because we always seem to sneak in references. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we initially planned this as part of the episode we did last time on fanzines and fan fiction, but we quickly realized that it became way too big and too much to do into one episode. So we kind of decided to split it up in the staggering order of going between the astounding episodes, because we think that all four of these episodes really tie together into one cohesive whole that kind of mm -hmm. forms the basis for American science fiction. Yeah. And yeah, after that, we're probably going to do some host choice stuff. So it'll be cool. Yeah. Everybody who's listening in, feel free to like and subscribe and do all that cool stuff that you're supposed to do. If you're listening on the YouTube channel, definitely subscribe. Write us a comment. We've been getting a few nice comments lately, which is cool. Yeah. Thank you for everybody for listening. We uh, yes. definitely got a lot of views recently on YouTube. So yeah. if you've made it this far, we're happy to have you here. <laughs> yeah, uh, We'd love to talk. So if you want to leave us mail at chrononautspodcast at gmail.com or YouTube comments or comments on the various podcast platforms, please do that. Uh, we would love to hear from you. And so now... It is late, and while we sincerely hope you've enjoyed your time here with us on Chrononauts. What happened? The external environment has developed a low-level impingement event, which is interfering with our cross-temporal psychometric channeling. We can no longer interact with the world of the future. Alright, alright, open up in there. Kids up to no good. I tell ya, they ought to be put to work until they beg for mama. Yeah, what's the game here anyway? You three jokers don't own this joint, do ya? Well, no, but... We're holding it. Guarding it for the owners, you know. Here. Would you care for some psychotemporal resonators? Put them on and see the world better than ever before. Yours for a song. Some bourbon? Goes down real smooth. This stuff is famous down in Kentucky. 
No. Alright. You guys best not act like a bunch of wise guys. Or I have to book you. Give you some time in the tank with the drunks. See how long you last. I ain't got time for this Barnum Circus freak stuff. Beat it, punks! Don't let me see you around here again, or else... Come on, beat it! be some cleanup. Wouldn't want anyone respectable to see the joint looking like this. What is all this garbage on the walls anyway? Uh, say, this one looks kind of pretty. Nice, silky blonde hair. Great big... Hey, wait a minute. Tentacles? Uh! 